Hier komen wij in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio, Revolutionary Socialist podcast broadcasting from Melbourne, Australia today. We speak to guests from around this country that was um, invaded uh, and where the land was never ceded um, and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're on our second episode of highlights from the Marxism conferences, which we thought that you might enjoy listening to in this um, Australian summer or festive season or any time really that you pick up these episodes. Um, and looking back through the archives, the audio archives of the conferences that we've had, and I've been involved in organising them, and so has Liam. Hello, Liam. Hello. Liam's often been on the uh, technical team, would you believe, for Marxism. You can blame me for the bad quality of some of these yeah, recordings. Like, <laughs> if we play these clips and the recording sounds crap, then you know uh, who to look at. But no, it's it's an amazing effort of volunteers, really, to um, organise these conferences and, of course, 2020 was not the time to be holding a conference in Melbourne. So what's happened is that for 2021, there are plans in place to allow for um, online and potentially offline sessions at Marxism um, and to hold the conference across multiple cities. So whatever where whatever happens, you will be able to go to Marxism 2021, basically, uh, whether mm-hmm. that's online somewhere or offline somewhere. So check out the program. It's there on the website, marxismconference.org. Get your tickets uh, to support um, events like the extracts that we're going to be playing today. So um, this episode, the theme is the liberation of Palestine, but I think it really goes further than that. The two speakers that we're highlighting, Hawaida Araf and Remy Kanazi, are two of um, many Palestinian speakers that we've had at Marxism. I think basically every Marxism conference, as far as I can remember, I think my first Marxism was Marxism 20, uh, 2009. <laughs> uh, and I think every conference has had a Palestinian. Is that right, Liam? Is that your memory too? Uh, yeah. I, I Well, I mean, I have a lot more than you might go back to sort of 2002 when we didn't even call them Marxism, would have been called something else. But yeah. It might have been some of those early years where we didn't better because I do remember at some point how excited we were when we did get a Palestinian, mm. you know, actually flew into the country. But we also had, you know, Palestinian member members of the Palestinian diaspora, yep. you know, um, Australian Palestinians, American Palestinians, and so on. But it's always at least been a topic for discussion because I, I guess, uh, and you know, it never goes away as an issue. Um, the treatment of Palestinians uh, in their homeland and. The speakers that we have tried to get to Marxism have often been um, stopped at the Australian border or in advance of the Australian border. So we've also had to run campaigns and Remy Kanazi was one of those people who did not make it through to Marxism in 2019, but he made it to socialism. So I've sneakily added in our Sydney conference, Socialism, which is also fantastic, um, Mm. to this highlights package. But let's start with Hawaida Araf. So she's a Palestinian-American activist, um, so she has citizenship in the US, 
which I think probably helped get her to Melbourne, and was the co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement, so a Palestinian-led organization who tried to apply international pressure to support Palestinians um, who are living under Israeli occupation. And this was the talk that she gave or the comments that she made at the closing session of Marxism 28 on a panel with Liam Ward, actually. Um, We're not going to play your highlights, although that has been a request from Uh. listeners. But Hawaida Araf, I think, uh, just sums up beautifully in kind of 13 minutes why you should support Palestine and what the conditions are like and why the liberation of Palestinians is tied so closely with the liberation of the whole of humanity. So, Huayda Araf. Two days ago, at the demonstration we just heard about, a 75-year-old man, he held up the key to his home and he said, it's been 70 years and no one is answering us. This man, Ali, he was amongst the tens of thousands of people, Palestinian, mostly refugees, Palestinian men, women, and children, most of who have been trapped their whole lives in an area that is no larger than a small corner of Melbourne, attempted to march towards their homes. And as Vashti said, soldiers sitting on hilltops, 100 snipers, opened fire on them like fish in a barrel. 17 dead and over 1,500 injured. Three months ago, a 16-year-old Palestinian girl, Ahad Tamimi, was caught on video slapping a fully armed Israeli soldier who had invaded her family's property. Ahad was used to soldiers on her property. She's used to seeing her father arrested, her mother has been arrested, her brother has been arrested. She has lived her whole life under military occupation, and every week the soldiers come into her village and shoot tear gas and bullets at people protesting the confiscation of their land. But this time, on this particular day, the soldiers came onto her family's property shortly after shooting her 15-year-old cousin in the face and putting him in a coma. So she slapped this soldier. Israeli society thought, we can't be shamed like this and went into an outrage over how she was a terrorist and the Israeli military cannot stand for this. And so the soldiers came to her house in the middle of the night and dragged her from her bed and took her away. The Israeli military prosecutor lobbed 12 charges against her. And she's been in Israeli military prison ever since. Two weeks ago, she accepted a plea deal. And she'll be spending eight months in prison. Shame. Shame. And as horrific as her sentence was, and as unjust as it was, her sentence would have been much heavier if there weren't tens, hundreds of thousands of people that were outraged and raising their voice about it. Almost two million people signed a petition demanding her release. And protesting. And because you raised her profile, the Israeli military was literally begging her attorney for her to accept a plea deal, which she took because honestly she couldn't have got anything lighter. She could have gotten up to 10 years in prison, and she is only one of hundreds 
of Palestinian children. Every single year, five to 700 Palestinian children are taken from their homes like this and put through the Israeli military uh, court system. They are abused. They are not allowed to have an attorney present. And then they are sentenced and lose their childhood. But again, because we raised Ahed's profile, she got a good deal. But she asked us, when she, her sentence was handed down, she was asked what she thought of her sentence. And she said, she said, I was sentenced by an illegitimate court. There is no justice under occupation. And she urges us to remember all of the other Palestinian children that didn't get the attention that she has gotten and that are languishing in Israeli military prison. Ahed has a cousin, a younger cousin, who calls herself the youngest journalist in the world. At the age of seven, at the age of seven, young Jenna felt this burden to tell her story to the world, and so she became a journalist, trying to document what's happening because she spoke good English, speaking and telling what's happening in her village. And while that's very admirable, this is a burden that a seven-year-old child felt she had to carry. This is not a childhood. A few weeks ago, the Israeli military invaded one of the largest Palestinian universities in the West Bank, Birzit. And they kidnapped the head of the Palestinian Student Council, and they frequently do this. Omar Kiswani, he is reportedly being interrogated up to 18 hours a day without being allowed to see his lawyer. He has not been charged with anything, and so 12 days ago he announced the hunger strike. And I tell you this because nobody would know his name, nobody would know that he's on hunger strike, and Israel would be perfectly happy to have him brought to the brink of death. And we have over seven, or sorry, 6,000 Palestinian political prisoners. Hundreds of them are never charged with anything and yet spend years of their lives in prison. And when they protest using their bodies, going on hunger strike, resisting, they really count on us. You know, sometimes we think there's not much we can do, but just knowing that we're out there strengthens them and raising our voices gives them power up against the military uh, and, and the colonial state that they are fighting. There's a village that I mentioned in my talk, Um al Hiran. On the 21st of March, Israeli forces came into this village and posted eviction notices. They want to demolish it. They want to demolish it to build a Jewish town there. And they said between the 15th and the 29th of April... Sometime, we don't know exactly when they're going to come in and demolish this village. We've managed to save villages before when we've raised our voices, when we put it on social media, when we've protested. And so this village put a call out and hopefully we will answer it and not let Umm al-Hiran be destroyed. and the people that were represented by the people that spoke to us here today about the Rohingya and, and those fighting in the Philippines and Sri Lanka, people living under oppression don't have a choice. They don't have the luxury to ask because this is their lives. You know, in 1990, a 10-year-old American girl speaking at a school press conference 
press conference was on world hunger. And this 10-year-old said, I'm here because I care. She talked about the children, just like her dying of hunger around the world, and about her dream of eliminating world hunger, saying, my dream can and will come true if we all look into the future and see the light that shines there. If we ignore it, that light will go out. If we help and work together, it will grow and burn free with the potential of tomorrow. 13 years later, that girl traveled to Palestine to volunteer with the International Solidarity Movement, and she went to Gaza. In writing home to her mom, she said, I'm rambling, but I just wanted to write to my mom and tell her that I'm witnessing this chronic, insidious genocide, and I'm really scared, and questioning my fundamental belief in the goodness of human nature. This has to stop. I think it's a good idea for us all to drop everything and devote our lives to making it stop. I don't think it's an extremist thing to do anymore. I really want to dance around to Pat Benatar and have boyfriends and make <laughs> comics for my coworkers, but I also want this to stop. Disbelief and horror is what I feel. Disappointment. I'm disappointed that this is the base reality of our world and that we, in fact, participate in it. This is not at all what I asked for when I came into this world. This is not at all what the people here asked for when they came into this world. This is not the world you and Dad wanted me to come into when you decided to have me. This is not what I meant when I looked at Capitol Lake and said, this is the wide world and I'm coming into it. I did not mean that I was coming into a world where I, where I could live a comfortable life and possibly with no effort at all, exist in complete unawareness of my participation in genocide. Two weeks later, this girl, Rachel Corey, bravely stood in front of an Israeli military bulldozer, driven by a soldier trying to demolish the home of a family that she had been staying with. And through the bulldozer, through the uh, bullhorn, sorry, she was talking to this bulldozer driver, saying, what would your mom think of what you're doing? The soldier ran her over with that bulldozer, crushing her to death. It was 15 years ago, last month, that Rachel Corey was killed, but her words live on. And one of the things she wrote home also to her mother only two weeks before she was killed was, just hearing about what you're doing makes me feel less alone, less useless, less invisible. The international media and our government are not going to tell us that we are effective, important, justified in our work, courageous, intelligent, valuable. We have to do that for each other. And one way we can do that is by continuing our work, visibly. Indeed, she said, and we say, we know that we can choose to stand in solidarity with people that don't have the privilege to choose, or we can do nothing. And I know that everyone's here because we believe that we can create a better world. I know that everyone here cares, or you wouldn't be here. But sometimes all of us get tired, get disillusioned, wonder if we're effective, get overwhelmed with the daily stresses that we have in our lives. I personally was on the ground in Palestine a long time and believed that I was making change and now I, I can't be in Palestine. Now I'm in the United States. And I sometimes want to bury my head under the covers. I have two small children now, and in teaching them, 
One of the reasons I can't be in Palestine is because Israel does not let their father enter, and I don't want to take them away from their father, so we're, we're in the U.S. But I want them to know what's happening, and that every day they have to do something to make this world a better place, even though they're only three and four years old. <laughs> yeah. You know, so one of these days my daughter was asking me about Palestine. She's three, and I was telling her, and she said, Mama, they took our country. I said, yes, they did. She said, well, we have to get it back. <laughs> I said, yes, we do. She said, we have to fight them. <laughs> yep. She said, Mama, we have to put on our superhero costumes and fight them. <laughs> and I'm bad girl, and you're Wonder Woman. <laughs> You know, our capes might not make us superhuman, and we might not be able to fly or anything, but, but working together with the knowledge that it takes every single one of us to make change, and believing that we are effective. We are a damn strong force. And I'm honored to be standing here amongst you and to go forward from today. Continue our work. Create a better tomorrow. Thank you for being here. And that was a standing ovation at the end mm. of that. Um, I think that went on for some time. You've probably had to crop that, Liam. Yep. Yeah. And it was one of those, yeah, just um, electrifying moments. And that's kind of the uh, one of the most exciting things about being at a Marxism conference are those moments when you're like, whoa, this is a, a, a collective experience of something. Um, pretty amazing. The second extract in this episode um, is Remy Kanazi, and Remy's a, I think, a, a fantastic speaker in part because he's a poet and he is useful, useful, used to um, performing poetry, and so he speaks very quickly. Again, another mm. one that you have to listen carefully because there's so much content in such a really punchy extract here. Um, if you haven't heard of Remy Kanazi, he's um, you can look up his poetry collection before the next bomb drops, Rising Up from Brooklyn to Palestine, and Poetic Injustice, Writings on Resistance in Palestine, and he was the editor of Poets for Palestine. So he's really dedicated his um, life to drawing attention, raising awareness, and campaigning uh, for Palestinian justice. So I uh, hope you enjoy this. It's the opening night of Socialism 2019 and here is Remy Kanazi. I didn't want to print my shit out uh, going through the airport so I got it on my laptop. Um, you know they asked why I was coming. I was like I'm just going to see the Steve Irwin memorial. I don't know what the problem is. Thank God Paul Hogan's still alive. Um, Sorry, I'm from the U.S., and that's as close as I'm going to get to a good settler colonial joke. Um, 
But uh, I want to thank the organizers for having me out. Uh, apparently, you just have like 90 Marxism and Socialism conferences a year, so I could like. I think there was like one last week, and now yeah. So, um, so two things. Uh, one is. Uh, I think the revolution like might happen here because like there were like I walked two and a half miles to like get here and there was arrows pointing like all the way to Sydney <laughs> University like I've never like that shit doesn't happen at the socialism conference in Chicago um, no offense if you're watching this online okay let me get to my talk uh, I don't remember the last time I slept because it was like a 90 hour flight so if I like pass out mid talk you can come and just read this shit off the laptop uh, I'm a spoken word poet so I tried to con conceive of it in a really loud and fast-paced way. Um, yeah, so I reflected on a number of things. I'll talk, I'm Palestinian. I'll talk a little bit about Palestine, organizing, and why we need to act. Um, but because we're speaking about systems and structures of oppression, uh, control, dispossession from Australia to Palestine to the U.S.-Mexico border, um, I think it's important for me to say as a Palestinian, you know, in the same breath that I'm saying end the occupation, I got to be saying end mass incarceration. Yeah. With the same vigor that you're saying... Not one more bomb dropped on Gaza. You need to be saying not one more black person executed in Baltimore, Chicago. Yeah. And with the same energy that we're saying boycott, divestment, and sanctions, we got to be saying divest from prisons. Yeah. Because whether you're challenging the drone bombing of Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, occupation apartheid in Palestine, gender violence on college campuses, transphobia in our local communities, the continued confiscation of native land and resources, what binds socialists and socially conscious people together is working against those systems and structures of oppression. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of a different context within the U.S., but like when I speak about Palestine, it's not to say that the Palestinian people are more special than anyone else. It's to say that nobody should live under a system of occupation. Yeah. Nobody should live under a system of apartheid, and nobody should see their families ethnically cleansed. Um, now we continue to live in a global hour of repression from gunned down protesters in Sudan uh, to rising fascism in Europe to kids being stuffed in cages in the US. Now more than ever is time to probe these connections. The same logic that justifies paying $2.1 million to put a soldier in Afghanistan uh, facilitates the denial of healthcare, education, and working bridges and roads across the U.S. It's the same logic that subsidizes the bombing of power plants in Gaza and tear gas canisters suffocating the lives and lungs of black protesters in Ferguson. Through the struggle for Palestine, we recognize interconnected systems, a battle against imperialism and neoliberalism we view a longer history from Sun City to Coachella Valley and Montgomery to Derry. And we affirm solidarity against structures of violence from predatory corporations and institutionalized racism to U.S. wars and military occupation. But it's not enough to know we must act. It's not enough to wag a finger. We must cut lines of complicity. As the U.S. government subsidizes Israeli bulldozers and bullets, providing $3.8 billion a year in military aid to the state, U.S. cities and university campuses are investing in companies profiting off of wall building and illegal settlement expansion. And so we organize on campuses, in local communities, inside unions and out on the streets, online and at rallies, in churches, temples, and mosques, we push our co-workers, have tough conversation with relatives, challenge that artist, push back on the academic, and knock on doors. We talk to shop owners, speak on panels, chair events, build mock checkpoints, and facilitate workshops. We create community that extends beyond Palestine in the specific reference that I'm speaking to envision what liberation looks like through action. But as, we, but as we seek to exist 
uh, as we seek to challenge existing power structures, a host of right-wing actors uh, in the U.S. are working against us. From Canary Mission to Israel on campus, U.S. students are spied on, professors are smeared, solidarity events are sabotaged, and neoliberal chancellors and university presidents bow to donors standing on the wrong side of history. We don't have the right-wing backing of billionaire Sheldon Adelson. We don't have millions of dollars uh, in, in funded organizations. We don't have billions of dollars in military aid, but we have truth and history on our side, and that has no price tag. Um, but we have to build that power, and it's why we need... Let me see how much I have left. I'm going to put some shit on. Okay. Um, <laughs> This is why we need movement organizing. Movements shape discourse. Movements create a platform for the next critic of Israel to stand on. Movements slowly crack open the doors to new arenas, creating fertile ground where Palestine is no longer the taboo issue uh, or the thorn in the side of even so-called progressive spaces. Uh, in fact, Palestine, particularly in the U.S., is becoming a litmus test. Are you for or against systems of oppression? Are you for or against the status quo? Are you for or against a people's freedom? Um, now, with corporations jacking up prices on insulin and lining the pockets off of wall building and pipelines, where do you stand? As the climate change, uh, as the climate crisis ends lives today, what the fuck are you going to do to build a better future? Um, now, I'm going to cut some of this out. Israel controls the air, the border, the sea, the imports, the taxes, the tariffs, every facet of life. Israeli occupation apartheid itself is a form of daily collective violence against uh, an indigenous people. 97% of the water in Gaza undrinkable, 58% youth unemployment. Uh, in the West Bank, farmers are kicked, kicked off land, children are separated from schools, doctors can't access hospitals. Um, so it really, I'm just going to erase this, uh, and at the center of it all is 71 years of ethnic cleansing. For folks that don't know, from 1947 in 1949, 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed, including my family, to make way for what became the state of Israel. Today, more than 7 million plus Palestinian refugees can't return to their homes and lands. So it goes back to the question of what are we going to do about it? In 2005, Palestinian civil society called for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against the state of Israel until it complied with three basic demands. End the occupation of all Arab land, take down of the apartheid wall in accordance with the 2004 International Court of Justice ruling, and equality for all Palestinians living in inside of the state of Israel. Uh, it's a positive, ethical, anti-racist, and most importantly, effective tactic uh, to challenge the Israeli state. Um, and inside Israeli apartheid, we don't simply see a system of control and collective punishment, but an incubator for Israeli and U.S. profit. We see tear gas testing grounds, a sound bomb laboratory, and new sniper scopes on display. We witness drone operators stalking trapped Palestinians and monitoring systems on the U.S.-Mexico border. What am I at? Two minutes? One minute? Zero minutes? Okay. I'm going to wrap this shit up. You know, fuck it. Liberate all people. But you get Okay. Uh, uh, I'm going to cut this out. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, a lot is going on. <laughs> All right, I'm going to cut that out. So Black Palestine and Solidarity is stronger than ever, and as we speak, there's a Dream Defenders delegation in Palestine uh, right now. We see notable black figures from Angela Davis to Mark Lamont Hill to uh, Michelle Alexander, brave attacks, smear campaigns, lost jobs, and rescinded awards to firmly stand with Palestine. Um, from Black Youth Project 100 to the Red Nation, black, native, Latinx, queer, and Jewish organizations continue to show solidarity. When the movement, in, when the movement for black lives endorsed divestment as part of its uh, platform, 
it opens space for other people to speak up. So tomorrow I'm going to be doing a Palestine panel, and yes, I'm a BDS organizer, but it's very connected to everything across the spectrum. That when we look at the moment today, it's very much connected to that protest with 13 people back in 2002. And sometimes with some of the big spectacle, a lot of those things that can get erased. But it's not the fucking poet or uh, the really well-known speaker, the person that got a million YouTube views. It's everybody in this room. It's every organizer. It's every person that postered, that flyered, um, that did everything to put this conference together that makes movement happen. I'm going to cut that out. Uh, so it's the idea that like we can't do it alone. we got to see the connections. Occupiers and settler colonial states uh, get along well together and those same corporations like to profit off of each other, whether it's 10 hours a week or two hours a month, whether Palestine, labor rights, Black Lives Matter, indigenous struggles or feminist issues, it has to be everyone. And I'm really thrilled to be in a room with people committed to liberation for all. So let's get moving. So you were listening to Remy Kanazi, and before that, Hawaida Araf, Palestinian activists. And if you want to read more about um, Palestine and the kind of real story behind all of the propaganda that you might see in the mainstream media, there's an excellent book by Vashti Fox that's available at the Red Flag Bookshop that just came out um, in 2020, Red Flag Books. Um, and look up Vashti Fox. I can't remember the exact title, but it's about Palestine. It's totally worth reading if you if you're new to this kind of topic, or if you are already someone who is it called the story of Palestine. I think it's called the story of Palestine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people check that out, uh, and thank you for listening. You are tuned into Red Flag Radio. Share these episodes if you enjoy them, and make sure you listen to some of our previous ones as well. If this is the first you enjoyed. We have a world to win. <laughs>